This is the Cislunar Experience. I'm your host, Jay Vincent Maroli. Man, a mere inhabitant of the earth, cannot overstep its boundaries. But though he is confined to its crust, he may penetrate into all its secrets. That was a quote from Jules Verne, a uh, pretty awesome author from back in the day, uh, who wrote amazing stuff about exploration and the future and some space things. think that's fitting for today's guest, uh, who is the founder and CEO of Honeybee Robotics, Chris Zachney. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate yeah. the opportunity. Thanks. I'm, I'm not CEO, though. <laughs> oh, shit. I did say that wrong. Oh, my God. <laughs> my boss is going to fire me. It's okay. <laughs> I'm just a lonely VP. and uh, <laughs> But the most important thing is I'm having a lot of fun. And uh, it's it's really great place to work. And, um, yeah, the, it, we... The company actually started a long time ago, almost uh, four decades, in uh, in Manhattan by two friends who went to school together. And one day, they decided to uh, to try to change the world. And uh, one way to do it is uh, go into robotics. And uh, a few years after starting the company, one of us, so it was Chris and Steve, uh, Chris Chapman and Steve Gorevan and Steve... Uh, Called a space bug, okay. and uh, there was a beginning, and uh, there was no turning around. From this point onwards, it was all about space and developing things to uh, to go to space and explore. And 40 years ago, it wasn't just like the way it is now. So going to space was extremely, extremely difficult. And um, uh, if if you got to fly something to space, you were very, very lucky. Whereas now, it's, uh, we take it for granted um, how, how far we came along. Yeah, we do. Uh, that, <laughs> that makes a little bit more sense because we first interacted, excuse me, a few months ago mm -hmm. when I was in the program uh, at Colorado School of Mines and then more recently at a, a space resource conference. Mm -hmm. And then as I did this research, I saw Chris and the founder, Chris, 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 Chris. And so I, I, I'm realizing in my head, I conflated the two of those <laughs> like a dork. So, hey, you know, yeah, as learn long, from your failures. As, as long as uh, I'm not going to get fired. So good. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and um, so, so in 2010, Gail Paulson and I left Manhattan. We, we used to be in Manhattan office and uh, we ventured west. We wanted to be close to JPL. JPL is, um, when it comes to uh, robotics exploration of space, is uh, is second to none. It's it's an absolute powerhouse. Mm. The stuff they do is is just amazing. Um, so we wanted to be obviously close. Uh, historically, Honeybee Robotics has been doing a lot uh, with JPL uh, on Mars exploration rovers and Curiosity and and so on. So we wanted to uh, to learn from the best and um, and be you know across, literally across the fence, and uh, that's why we came out and uh, things really worked out. The back in 2010 it was just two of us. Now we um, a, coming closer to 150 people, and Dang. and uh, in fact we have to take over entire building next door to to further grow. And a lot of uh, we have a lot of fascinating uh, missions coming up. 
to the moon, to uh, uh, to Phobos, to Titan, to Mars, and a lot of other uh, concepts, uh, like completely out of his world concepts that hmm. probably my kids uh, will be working on. Um, okay, uh, it's go- you know some of these things uh, will take decades, absolutely, you know, decades if if not longer to to come to fruition. What's okay? So let's let's start with yeah. that because that's exciting. <laughs> Start with right. You know, there's. I've, I've heard recently, and I'm. I think I'm throwing it on every podcast, right? But there's, there's vision, strategy, and tactics. Tactics. How does this particular drill mm-hmm. into the soil? Uh, what is the research and the engineering marvels that allow that to happen? That's fantastic. But if you don't have vision and strategy, uh, that's just a, a cool thing that you set on a desk. So. I guess zoom out for a second. Mm-hmm. You said the founders got bit by the space bug. There's a lot of different ways to get bit by the space bug. What what was what's the main vision of Honeybee Robotics? And I think that'll probably tie into Phobos and cool future things. You know, uh, I think vision of Honeybee is is pretty much shared by everyone that that works for Honeybee. And it's it's not just Honeybee; it's a lot of other space companies um, out there. It's all about uh, discovering unknowns and uh, and really changing the world. Uh, you can you can obviously change the world and and uh, um, by developing new medicine, by mm-hmm. developing more efficient uh, cars and and uh, um, healthier food and things like that. Um, to me and, and the folks working here at Honeybee, it's, it's really uh, all about looking out into space and wondering what's out there and whether one day uh, humans could potentially settle on other planetary bodies like Mars, the moon, and, mm-hmm. and beyond. So um, it's, it's, um, uh, it's just different uh, type of uh, curiosity and, and uh, trying to change the world. Um, you know, it's like you go to the ice cream shop um, and, um, uh, you know, you know, you like vanilla, so you ask for vanilla. Your friend asks, uh, likes chocolate. So, you know, it's it's really, uh, it's what you like, right? Okay. And um, we're living in, a, in amazing times uh, that we can have both vanilla and chocolate. So uh, we can do space and we can do EV cars and we can do amazing, uh, you know, developing gene therapies and, and uh, hmm. everything at the, at the uh, fingertips. Yeah. In fact, I told my kids, yeah, yeah. I wish I was born today, <laughs> okay? I wish I was yeah. born today and had opportunities to literally do uh, everything that uh, decades ago, it was just uh, yeah. far away. Yeah, I... My heart goes out really to the, I think the, the phrase is orphans of the Apollo era. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my, my my dad doesn't quite fall into that. I think he was about five or six when he watched the moon landing. Um, but the guys that were already in their mid-20s, 30s that were working on it, oh yeah. Yeah. These are the things uh, you'll never forget. Yeah. But the world is changing and... Um, a lot of uh, there are a lot of opportunities. One thing 
that uh, in fact we're super lucky to, to witness is that two of the wealthiest people in the world, yeah. they're spending their own money on space, right? You have yeah. Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin and, and Honeybee was just acquired by Blue Origin a couple of months ago to yeah. make his vision a reality. And, and then we have obviously Elon Musk with, uh, with SpaceX. And mm -hmm. um, so, so we're lucky, uh, you know, we're lucky that Jeff's vision is, is space and Elon's uh, vision is also space. And, yeah. and uh, on top of this, there are many other billionaires and, and millionaires that are spending their own money advancing space technology. So uh, it's an it's absolutely new era. So, so jumping into that, right? you said a second ago, right, one of the larger visions is that spread humanity out to the solar system, living on other planets, etc. Um, let's, let's, let's start with this. You, you posed a question to me a few months ago that just blew my mind apart. And it was regarding should in the next three decades... Should a trip to Mars be a one-way ticket or not? Mm -hmm. Talking about fuel costs and what that entails. Flush that out a little bit for, sure. for the audience there. Because a lot of people think of, you know, go to Mars and die. That seems pretty intense. And who would want to sign up for that? Uh, you framed it in an interesting way, though. Yeah, it's it's really economics. and But, you know, one thing to, to also realize is, we got kind of spoiled by uh, transportation systems. Um, back, uh, you know, a few hundred years ago, people would buy one-way ticket to come to America, okay? Mm. They would board a ship and they would know that uh, this is one way. They're gonna have to come to America and, and make a living because there was no way of, of going back uh, to where they come from. So, um, and uh, it was fine. You know, a lot of people, millions of people made this made this journey and, and made this commitment. So now, hmm. you know, uh, so you can argue, well, uh, folks moving to Mars, they could make exactly the same commitment. They can make a commitment to go to Mars and uh, stay there till, till they die. But um, there is another reason why it's going to be extremely hard for them to come back. And it's just pure economics. So a current... Um, a you know cost of putting something on the, on the surface of Mars can be uh, traced back to what NASA JPL is doing, and you know just you know uh, taking Tra big numbers Tra trace trace back there just because they've already you know they've because they've done so it. many examples yeah because they've done it we've done it successfully they've done it every single time got if it. you you know we take it for granted but. Uh, um, when when you know we're sending spacecraft to to land on the surface of mars everyone expects that uh, this spacecraft is going to land it's not gonna crash with expectation but because of this expectation there is also cost associated with this and uh, it takes a certain amount of hours to do analysis it takes a certain amount of hours yeah. to run the test in order to make sure that the spacecraft is not going to create a crater on mars but it's gonna successfully land which is easy to do because Mars is, it's hard to get to it. You got to go crazy, crazy fast. Then you have to slow down, but there's not really an atmosphere to slow down, but there's enough of an atmosphere to make you heat up. Mm -hmm. It's a hard one to land on. Mars is very, very hard. So, uh, 
So let's let's talk numbers. Um, yeah. Let's talk about curiosity and perseverance. Each of these rovers weigh approximately a ton. Hmm. So um, you know, of average cost of uh, um, putting this you know rover on the on the surface of Mars was around billion dollars, right? Including launch vehicles, including uh, cruise stages and sky crane and everything else. So sure, all right, billion dollars. If you want to put anything on the surface, one ton on the surface of Mars, it costs you billion dollars. Now, and, um, and and that's with with current infrastructure, right? That's not assuming uh, a Starship, for example, fully refueled. Yes, okay. it's a. Uh, Exactly right. This this assumes a status quo. The existing technologies, proven proven technology. If, Got it. If I want to put one ton on the surface of Mars, I can walk over to JPL, give them billion dollars, and I know uh, a few years later there's going to be one ton payload uh, put on the surface of Mars. Right. Now we're working on uh, something called Mars uh, Sample Return mission, which is not really a mission, it's a campaign of several missions. Yeah. But uh, in a nutshell, uh, there's going to be a couple of missions going to Mars, picking up rocks uh, collected by Mars a 2020 or Perseverance rover, and these rocks will be put inside Mars Ascent vehicle, or essentially a rocket, that will launch these rocks uh, to the orbit, and Mars uh, a sample return orbiter is going to capture these rocks flying around Mars and bring them back home. Tracking. So, you know, uh, impressive. yeah, it's, it's a very complex, uh, it's probably going to be close to $10 billion, uh, mm. across all the, uh, you know, all the missions required to do this, but all right, fine. Uh, you don't really need Mars 2020 driving around Mars, picking up, uh, just the perfect rocks. You don't need a couple of things. You can descope certain things. All right, fine. Let's, for argument's sake, um, assume that the one ton that you put on the surface of Mars is actually a rocket with some kind of an arm that can pick up one kilogram of rocks, uh, stick it inside the rocket, launch it uh, to the orbit, and bring home. Um, okay. So. Let's say this, this entire thing costs a billion dollars to bring one kilogram of Martian stuff. So now you can do the quick ratio. You know, it cost me a billion dollars to put one ton on the surface of Mars. It cost me another billion dollars to return one kilogram from a, from a surface of Mars. Okay. So the ratio is one to 1,000. It's sort of like flying from Los Angeles to, to New York, paying $1,000 for a uh, ticket to, to New York and paying million dollars to come back from New York. Okay. And okay. if indeed this was the case, not many people would go to New York. Or people going to New York would go on a, on a one trip, one way journey because they would know they have no money, no million dollars yeah, to come yeah. back home. Okay. So that's my point. My point is that the cost of returning from Mars is going to be significantly higher. Mm. All right. So, so you may ask, how much is going to cost to put a human being on the surface of Mars? Hey, how much is it going to cost to put a human being on the surface of Mars? All right. Let's uh, let's do some guesses. Um, call it. You know, if I'm very optimistic, let's call it 
ten billion dollars. Okay? okay, you develop technologies and life support and everything else, and for ten billion dollars, you can put a human being on the surface of Mars, and you're not gonna crush. Okay, in in a, and you have an environment where they can live, right? And you have an environment where they can survive. Survive. Correct. Okay. So now, if you apply a ratio of one to one thousand, so now it's to come to return this person back is not 10 billion, it's 10 trillion. Fine, okay, I made a mistake. Let's say I made a mistake by an order of magnitude or even two orders of magnitude. Hmm. It's still a lot of money. Even if I'm wrong by a factor of 100, right? Yeah. And uh, going there, coming back costs 10 times more than going there. And going there costs $10 billion, coming back cost $100 billion. At that point, you're going to start asking questions. Mm -hmm. Why? Why shall we bring uh, somebody back from Mars is uh, if uh, the reason to go to Mars is to settle Mars in the first place, right? right? So um, uh, from an economic standpoint, there is no reason to to bring anyone back uh, back from Mars. You can essentially keep on sending spacecrafts to Mars to increase their population, uh, provide additional resources, hmm. some, some new technologies to, uh, to make these folks uh, live at the, at the higher standard of living. So within a, literally within a s first generation, what are you going to create are Martians. Hmm. We're not going to be humans anymore. Yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. They will be true right. Martians. And then um, there's going to be not just first generation, there's going to be second, third. And maybe after several generations, we develop technologies that will enable bring them back from Mars. Hmm. Okay? At that time, we're not going to be humans. We're going to be Martians. <laughs> They're going to look different. Yeah. Okay? Remember? Because of gravity. Because of gravity. Because of the fact that they're gonna be living in confined environments, mm. they be born in a, uh, you know, in a big can, all right, <laughs> and they, that's what all they're gonna know. Yeah, uh, they'll go out on uh, some trips around, you know, the local mountains, and but they're gonna be enclosed in uh, either pressurized rovers or, or you know, spacesuits. Yeah, but otherwise, the these will be completely different, uh, you know, humans, and we're gonna be calling them Martians. Hmm. And even you know, uh, we haven't solved uh, virus problems. You know, we've seen it in the past two years. We had COVID. Uh, um, these okay. folks, we're not gonna be exposed to any viruses that yeah. we humans are exposed to. That's really interesting. So they're gonna come back. You sneeze on them, they're gonna die. Yeah, because that was, I mean, that was the big issue with the two worlds uh, mm -hmm. interacting back in 1492 and thereafter. It wasn't, <laughs> Europe didn't have germ theory. They didn't know that this blanket had smallpox and all these other diseases in them. But by push or by shove, disease was spread. And I think the stats were like, <laughs> I mean, the next like 75 years, it was like 98% of mm -hmm. the Native American population over North and South America were just gone. Yep. Because yep. diseases that they had never seen for a million years or whatever 
exposed. So, but the, I guess the rebuttal to that is, mm-hmm. well, now we got better medicine. We got better, you know, uh, bacterial defenses and things of that nature. So maybe they could still interact and be friends. Um, but, it, but I hear your point on the genetic yep. decision. So, okay, well, that brings up an interesting distinction here because Honeybee wasn't purchased by SpaceX that wants to go colonize Mars. It's purchased by Blue Origin that has routinely said they subscribe to the O'Neill philosophy of why live on a planet when you can just live in a massive cylinder that has 1G? And maybe close to Earth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you do you see from your current perspective, right, longer in the industry? Do you see humanity just following one of those routes, or kind of splitting into both? Of maybe we first go to Mars. Actually, maybe we first go to the Moon. We can talk about that in a second. Um, but there's some Moon and Mars development, and then as the industrial base picks up, we've got these, you know humans or mm-hmm. earthers whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it that are still in 1g well i think yes to all um we we cannot just focus on on one and uh, be done with this um it's it's really important to um to focus on all the options that uh that are in front of us so um near-term options is obviously some kind of a space stations and whether they they rotate or not, it's it's question mark. Um, the non-rotating space stations are actually pretty good. The, um, the humans are mm. you know fine in a in a microgravity environment for you know for extended period of time. You had folks on the ISS uh, living there for a year or two years and does it, doesn't it like do a number on your bone mass though and like some muscles and it, it does. Uh, it does. You have to exercise and <coughs> we've been pretty good at uh, figuring out countermeasures, uh, food and, and exercise. But, um, you know, overall, I think if you hop between the uh, space station and, and the Earth, uh, you know, you, you should be okay. Um, mm-hmm. And also, you know, I, I would say that there is, a, there is a reason to go to space in a, in a microgravity and that's manufacturing. Yeah, uh, yeah that you can you can develop materials you know fiber optic that doesn't have any losses right yeah. uh, perfect crystals and um, and for that reason I think microgravity environment and space stations is is really good um, as we obviously you know grow and space stations gets bigger and bigger yeah you can start going to this uh, rotating space stations but then you have to worry about Coriolis forces and things like that sure. um has to be large enough so that it doesn't <coughs> what was it the 
if you have a space station that's small, then the difference in the gravitational effect is really large between your feet and your head. Mm-hmm. And that because you're five foot five, six foot, whatever, and then all the blood goes up there and you get real sick. So it has to be large enough so that the spin is decently similar of those six feet of height kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, first time I learned about, you know, uh, you know, I, I did read about it, but uh, first time I realized, you know, in practice, what does, what does it all mean? Getting sick? Uh, it's hmm. uh, it's flying with uh, on a vomit comet, and yeah. uh, or zero G zero G Corporation is is um, is a company that does these things uh, nowadays mm-hmm. and uh, you don't really get sick in microgravity okay when when a plane falls down and and the in uh, this falling down with aeroplane microgravity you don't get sick uh, the only time you get sick is when a uh, aeroplane goes through a 2g pullout so essentially bottoms out and uh, has to come up again um, to to fall down again gotcha. so uh, during pullout um, sort of like a takeoff, but uh, it's up in the air. Uh, you go through two G's, and uh, the best way to uh, to survive these two G's, which lasts half a minute or something like that, um, is to lay still or sit still. If you start moving your head, hmm. at that point you're gonna get sick. And um, so next time you drive fast car and you take a corner. Uh, move your head left to right and you're gonna get sick hmm. uh, so that's why you're getting sick when you have gravitational vector along one uh, along one you know one direction yeah. and then you're trying to do uh, something with your head and your inner ear which where this is where your balance uh, sits um, gets all messed up and uh, you lose a sense of which way is up so that's why you're getting sick Gotcha. Yeah, I've seen some stuff on uh, was it the recent Top Gun movie mm-hmm. uh, where they those guys trained Miles Teller, um, uh, Tom Cruise, and the rest of them. Like they were actually at. I don't think they hit nine and ten G's, but they were actually at like six, seven, at least seven G's. And there's a clip where Miles is like describing how you have to breathe and that just to like look around, and it's. <laughs> <laughs> real 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 funny stuff um i have yet to be in a fighter jet my dad did that in training back in the day um but it's it's taxing on your body you have seven of you (laughs) basically standing on your chest so so we want to avoid that thankfully um there's no rocky planets in our solar system that will do that jupiter can't really stand on her uh you've fall mm-hmm. right through the cracks um but but zooming further out to the whole solar system because you know you guys are doing some really great stuff up on the moon uh, but i think we'll hunter uh, one of the other guys on the team we're gonna have him on in just a bit and talk about that so talk to me more about like the long-term vision the the things over on on phobos and all these other different tools the honeybee is developing for hopefully, uh, an expansive future. I'll start closer to home and uh, cool. maybe talk about the moon first. All right. Moon has water. It has yeah. uh, a plenty of water, uh, which is 
ice uh, in the form of ice because it's extremely cold, trapped in a, in a South Pole, uh, in a deep craters that haven't seen sun uh, for billions of years. And that's where water molecules kind of got stuck and they never could come out. And uh, another water molecule would come in and literally at the end of the day you have a lot of uh, water uh, as eyes uh, at the bottom of a crater. So we're working on two missions. The first one is called Prime One, and the second one is called Viper. Prime One is a lander, and Viper is a rover. Do we do we know how much ice is down there? Like roughly? Yeah, on um, it's a I can't remember quantity, but on average, is around five weight percent. So um, okay, of yeah, the whole moon on a, in the South Pole. Okay, of the, the South, South Pole, Pole region. So uh, on average, okay. um, in, a, in these craters where you see a signature of hydrogen or water, um, so 5% of um, in a top, at least top meter right. um, is, 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 is water. Because, and, and, and it's top meter because currently we don't have instruments that can read really below that, right? Correct. The, the top, the neutron spectrometer and uh, can uh, only sense down to um, one meter. It's it's more complex than this, but uh, because sure. you know you you have to th- you know learn about like uh, epithermal thermal neutrons and, and the propagation and and uh, but bottom line is the yeah. I- from a neutron spectrometer one meter top okay. one meter. So uh, we know within uh, where you see ice uh, or hydrogen. Uh, approximately five percent uh, of this is is water um and it's also thanks to uh uh el cross um yeah. mission uh from from ames that uh which was 2012 uh i think around yeah across a decade ago impacted yeah. uh, uh crater and and um, created plume and spacecraft essentially flew through this plume and measured how much water uh, came out, and that's how we have pretty good uh, mm-hmm. number. Gotcha. Uh, the uh, El Cross probably, you know, excavated, uh, you know, much more than a top meter. Yeah, um, sure. And uh, so, so bottom line is uh, Viper and, and Prime One. Uh, they they are equipped with one meter drill called Trident that uh, Honeybee's building, mm. and. Uh, uh, both missions have a mass spectrometer, and Viper, in addition to in addition to mass spectrometer, has near infrared spectrometer and neutron spectrometer. So these two missions, the goal of these two missions is to characterize uh, how much water there is, and and also characterize um, how much other volatiles there is uh, okay. there are in the, in the South Pole, because it's not just water. Mm-hmm. various carbon monoxide, various carbon dioxide, various ammonia. So if you if you look at what comet is made of, mm-hmm. pretty much most of the stuff you can find in a in the South Pole and North Pole of the moon because the water came from comets. Right. Um, That's the comets likely. impact impacting, yeah. Spill their guts. And okay, so you said it has the drill, uh, which has its own technology we can get into, but then on Viper there's a Set a mass spectrometer, neutron spectrometer, and a what was the third? Near infrared spectrometer. Near infrared. What do 
What do the three of those do? Um, so mass spect yeah. the neutron spectro spectrometer is looking for thermal epithermal neutrons that originate down to a meter depth, approximately. Um, okay. So uh, if they, they're looking essentially for hydrogen. And gotcha. the hydrogen is proxy for water because it's H2O. Mm -hmm. And um, um, if you find a hotspot, uh, you know, high hydrogen signature, then you know uh, there must be probably water there. Are, are there other elements on the moon that hydrogen like readily bonds to? Uh, you may have uh, hydrated minerals, but uh, uh, not very much on the moon. Okay. So it's so if you see hydrogen, it's, it's water. It's pretty much water. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so that's the hydrogen. That's the the ion one, uh, and then there's the mass spectrometer, which that, that's right. And uh, so once you know, hey, there is a hot spot at that point, you can deploy the drill, and uh, the drill goes down and brings the icy soil to the surface, and then mass spectrometer can sniff all the volatiles, all the ices. Um, that are escaping from a, from a material that's brought to the surface. So on a, on a moon, when you expose something, it's gonna literally sublime away. Um, okay. So like, you know, things vaporizing on Earth, on a, on a moon, they're subliming. They go from ice to, to vapor. Huh. And that's what mass spectrometer is sniffing. Um, and near yeah, infrared spectrometer is uh, shining a light on a, uh, on a material uh, called the regolith that uh, the drill is bringing from subsurface. And by looking at light coming back, it can also determine to some extent uh, certain volatiles and also mineral content, what the, mm. what the material is made of with fundamental uh, minerals. Okay. So the data that we have on the moon it's it's good for the the spot locations, um, but those spot locations in the past have we ever drilled down to a meter before? Like with all the different Apollo missions, I'm pretty sure those were just like hand tools, right? Yeah, Apollo 15, 16, and 17. They they actually drilled down to three meter depth on oh, wow. each one of them and brought three meter long core uh, that's now sitting at NASA Johnson in a in the creation facilities, and every so often, uh, they open up one of these cores to to uh, to investigate. Um, so yeah, we've done drilling with humans. Uh, we've done robotic drilling. In fact, very first drills were uh, sent by Soviets um, mm. on the Luna 16, 20, and then on Luna 24. Uh, it was they were all sample return mission. Luna 24 brought a. Uh, sample from Marikrisium uh, down to two meter depth. And wow. just recently, Chang'e 5, uh, Chinese mission, mm -hmm. also brought the sample. They used a very, um, a very similar drill as uh, Luna 24 um, uh, drilling system. Uh, the goal was to go to, to two meters, but the drill got um, stuck at, at, the, at the meter depth because of the pebbles, huh. like the small rocks. And uh, so at the meter depth, uh, the mission stopped and they brought sample back from this uh, top meter. So s some of these robotic uh, gotcha. you know, uh, drilling has, has been performed, but no one drilled in the uh, South Pole. Sure. Um, all the drilling and, 
in the mining and and uh, in fact all the missions went to the um, somewhat warmer regions on the moon and none of them were went to the um, to this you know southern polar regions where uh, where we have high probability of finding um, ice gotcha so if you're drilling on the you know the the you know, latitudes that are further up on the moon and there's less hydrated materials the moon is still it's very dusty it's very densely packed are there different problems that come with drilling in an area that has basically no water versus drilling half water concrete moon dirt yeah on uh, anywhere else so top um, you know 10 20 meters of, of lunar surface has been literally pulverized by uh, impacts yeah. meteorite impacts so essentially a rock hitting a rock uh, creates more rocks and dust right mm-hmm. and then another rock comes in hits a smaller rock so over billions of years uh, lunar surface uh, essentially became pulverized mm-hmm. uh, and um, in in fact most of the uh, 50% if not more of lunar soil is sub 75 microns mm-hmm. so it's uh, the you know the size of a human hair uh, it's super super fine wow. it's it's powder like and so it's you know when you drill into this uh, it's not drilling into rock it's really drilling into uh, like sand on a on a beach, right? Because mm. it's it's all it's all powder, it's all granular material. Okay. But in the South Pole, that's where that's a reason why our drills have hammering action or percussive action because we just don't know mm. whether ice that's in the South Pole uh, froze to form concrete hard uh, material like in the East Coast in winter or in Alaska, right? Mm-hmm. When you have permafrost, uh, where you have you know 10% gotcha. water and uh, you have soil and it's no different than concrete, right? Yeah. So we don't know whether it's something like that or whether the ice has also been pulverized by impacts mm-hmm. and uh, it's also granular. We just don't know. Gotcha. We don't know which of the uh, uh, factors dominated because one in one factor you have sintering where ice molecules kind of uh, stick together to form ice cube uh, or uh, whether meteorite impact uh, you know was effective enough to keep on breaking these ice cubes into into smaller ice cubes in smaller sections okay so the, the drill will will tell us this is the only way to know drilling Mm -hmm. and if we drill and we see we need a lot of power to drill yeah we're drilling into concrete Uh, if we drill and uh, we need 10 watts or 20 watts you know like led light bulb um, then we know it's uh it's relatively soft gotcha okay and again so the and the way this drill is very similar to like mining or oil excavating drills where in those cases you've got a drill bit and then a shaft above it and if you want to go deeper you just put another shaft in there and extend it further down is that how 
these viper drills are working or are they just going to the one meter depth it's just one meter depth okay. um okay the adding another section is possible but sure. uh, you have a significant increase in complexity yeah. in the robotic complexity makes sense and f from a because you have a rover uh, you wanna you'd rather spend time traversing longer mm. uh, you know longer distances as opposed to spending time uh, adding these drill strings and uh, go deeper and deeper and deeper right and gotcha. then potentially risk um, getting stuck yeah. uh, forever so um, so that's why we said well this is not gonna be uh, the first and last mission this is gonna be one of the missions that we we sent to to the moon uh, the goal is to uh, go as far as possible to uh, determine a distribution of ice so it's not just single location but is this distribution uh, the same everywhere we go hmm. or uh, you know some dry patches or what ice bearing patches um, right now the the pixels that we have from uh, from orbit are huge you know kilometers miles <laughs> miles big Sheesh. so we want to reduce this uh, you know granularity um, as to speak yeah. to to get, yeah, get get higher fidelity 10 data. meters maybe 100 me every 100 meters kind of thing okay just drill drill travel drill travel back and forth there the south pole though like those craters are pretty darn steep I've heard some other guys talk about and it's you know it's too late now it's been we've been too committed but that the north pole still has permanently shadowed regions still probably has ice up there but it's a lot more gradual craters on the way in south pole's not like that those things are 12 to like 29 30 degree uh declinations inclinations mm -hmm. that's probably a whole host of challenges for a rover to maintain as it's going down there how do you mitigate that when especially if if the mass or I guess the the weight of the rover is now reduced by one sixth, and you're drilling. Yeah, uh, it's we we're not gonna drive all the way down to the to the bottom of the crater. We're gonna okay. you know take a dip in uh, permanently shadow regions for a couple of hours and and come out. Um, so we we wanna you know we wanna crawl before we walk and before we run. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, very steep. Um, but you know, Curiosity rover was designed for, is it 25 degree slopes? Hmm. Um, so okay. we we know how to build stuff for you know for steep slopes, and uh, uh, folks who who love monster trucks, you know, you can just see what these what these puppies can do, right? <laughs> they go up super steep slopes, and yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I don't think uh, this would be, you know, from an engineering standpoint, uh, a showstopper. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, so, and again, right, these, the Viper setup that this drill is attached to, that's not collecting samples that then we would return. It's drilling them, pulling up the data, and then using those three different measurements to say, ah, this is the data. This Correct. is what's collected. Correct. So the drill essentially 
it's it's like a auger. It has an auger uh, which brings the cuttings to the surface or brings material to the surf surface, and you can look at it. Um, but another mission that um, we're flying to Marechrysium and the Schrodinger Basin on the far side of the moon hmm. has different type of drilling system. The drill is okay. size of a shoebox okay. and goes three meters down. Three meters down and size of a shoebox. And uh, it's completely different technology from more of these traditional uh, technologies that, that we just described. It's, it ca it's, it's called the coiled tubing. Um, okay. uh, it's actually used in oil and gas, and not many folks uh, know that uh, oil and gas is using this, this technology. Cold tubing. It's um, in oil and gas. It's a uh, you know two three inch diameter steel or composite tube that sits on a drum and uh, goes through uh, something called injector, which essentially turns the this uh, uh, you know tubing uh, straighten it out into a straight pipe, hmm. and uh, and that's how you, d you lower this entire drill pipe down. So there is no sections. It's a single, it's a single coiled uh, tube. It's sort of like a garden hose which you just pull out and uh, okay, and it's you know it's becomes straight. Is, right? is, are these the things that? So like for the visuals, right? It's it's a flat sheet, and then it's when you inflate sheet. it, it like b balloons up. No, it's it's always it's always a tube. Always a tube. It's like a garden hose. Your okay. garden hose is always okay. a tube. Yeah, and uh, you know. If you we fit we that are, inside a shoebox. Yep. <laughs> we in a, for this particular drill called Lister, which is a heat flow probe, where the tube is something like six millimeters in diameter. So it's actually quite small. Okay. Um, okay. Quite small and takes you know fifty watts to uh, to straighten it between a set of rollers. All right. Um, gotcha. In a you know going back to to garden hose analogy, uh, yeah. you know our, our muscles are strong enough to essentially pull a garden hose, and so it's straight. So uh, if you have a steel tube and uh, you strong guy, right, uh, you can do it the same, or you can pull it between the rollers and uh, make it straight. Um, gotcha. So that's something like this uh, that, that we're using for uh, these two missions. And um, instead of having a drill bit, we're actually using compressed gas. Hmm. And uh, compressed gas is like an explosive uh, on the moon in a vacuum. You know, uh, all explosives on Earth, they, what they do, the only thing they do is they generate a lot of, uh, a lot of air, right? <laughs> that's why they're explosives. Okay. Um, on a moon, uh, compressed gas is like explosive because okay. it expands into vacuum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we using this explosive nature of compressed gas in vacuum to essentially excavate a hole. We pumping this, sending this compressed explosive gas down in the bottom of the hole. It uh, blows the cuttings, blows the regular out of the hole you know, at 10, 15, 20 meters per second. Um, super fast, yeah. super fast. And uh, that's, you know, tiny thing. Right now we have concepts that would make a 100 meter hole on the surface of the moon using very similar concept. 
Yeah, and that's possible. Is, is there a way, like when you're doing this, I'm assuming that that gas is just lost to it's the atmosphere. Lost, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's with that shoebox sized thing, you can compress the gas down, mm-hmm. um, but it probably, and it can go down to three meters, probably gets what, like five or six different attempts at three meters and then it's out of gas or something like that? Yeah, we, we budgeted enough gas to allow us at least two to three, three meter holes. Okay. So two we've got three, plenty of gas and holes. the tank, you know, the tank is size of a Coca-Cola uh, can. <laughs> so you don't need, yeah. you don't really need a lot of gas. In fact, okay. um, for one gram of gas, you can lift around 100 to 1000 grams of soil. That's okay. That's so the this, measurement we need. This is the ratio, right? That's this is the ratio. So we became very conservative. We say, well, we're gonna probably do one to ten uh, to be to be on the safe side, and uh, we carry a lot of a lot of gas. Okay. For future, if you want to go hundred meters down or, or even deeper, yeah. you do not need to bring gas with you. Yeah, the propulsion. If if you think about it, propulsion systems on landers. They already have gas. Huh. They use they use nitrogen, argon, helium to compress propellant. So when you touch down, uh, this gas is normally vented to the to vacuum, but you can tap into it and you have gas for free. That's not bad. So yeah, you don't even have to worry about tanks because the lander is going to provide it to you. So okay, okay. So you know, uh, a rover comes and lands down on the moon, and it now has fifty percent of its gas left because it still has to leave. And because it only has fifty percent left gas left, it doesn't need as much of the argon or whatever. Yeah, landers most of the time they do not leave. Um, the, oh, that's right. The bottom, the bottom, the bottom element. part stays. Gotcha. Yeah, if you if you have a lunar ascent vehicle or you know return vehicle it's a upper section gotcha. with its own propulsion system Different and story. so on yeah the the bottom part with the big tanks so actually you don't really use gas uh the only you use gas to compress uh propellant but you don't really lose it as such it's still sitting in the tank gotcha okay so, so if you we, can tap into it so if we were to go to what at some point will be deemed historic sites of all mm-hmm. the Apollo programs just scavenging yeah scavenging why not? fill up the tanks why not in space fact, pirates yeah in fact think about it uh, you know some propulsion systems they have hydrogen and oxygen yeah. right which is also a gas I could use some oxygen yeah that would be there nice we go. so we can tap into it and, and use it for, for our for our drilling and mining okay. uh, system so yeah uh, so there is a way to make things, uh, to do things, uh, you know, efficient or on a cheap. Okay. So that's the moon. Um, yeah. So, but you're doing some other cool drilling stuff, not only just like sample, but also like resource extraction over on Mars, right? Yeah. On Mars, we, we developing a payload called, uh, red water. It's, um, it's a deep uh, mining system. Um, yeah, that uh, it, it goes tens of meters below the surface, and the Mars has these um, uh, ice sheets. They 10, 20 meters below the below the ground. 
you have literally glaciers uh, they which wow. extend like 100 meters 100 meter thing thick and um, so you can drill down and 10 meters or 20 meters and then you in ice wait, in wait, pure wait. ice question though so how do we know on mars that 10 meters down there's oceans of ice glaciers of ice and on the moon we have no idea what's below a meter oh because we took picture of this okay. from mars we have pictures we have pictures of uh um of these you know big glaciers uh covered by you know 10 20 meters of of regolith okay but so in infrared in neutrons in no in visual visual but it's under 10, 20 meters of soil. So uh, how did we? Because on a y y good question, yeah, you have uh, you actually looking on the on the side of uh, like craters, and uh, that's where you see exposed. Ah, you so see like exposed if you, eyes. If you go to the Grand Canyon, you're like, oh look, sandstone. Here's where the dinosaurs died. Exactly. Same sort of thing you can see on multiple craters on Mars. You see on multiple areas on Mars, including. Wow. Like, uh, you know, Arcadia Polynesia, which is one of the big spot, uh, big spots. Yeah, tourist destination. This and also uh, the other, uh, you can you can actually see signature of, of ice at the bottom of a relatively recent impact craters. Oh. Yeah, apparently, you know, if Viking, um, if Viking could drill meter down, mm -hmm. it may have potentially encountered ice. Wow. Yeah, the Viking could drill, but it obviously it couldn't. Okay. And th yeah, when when did Viking go? Back in. <laughs> I think it's eighties. Okay. Okay. Long time ago. Gotcha. Okay. So, <laughs> personally, I'm more like predisposed to the moon just because it's right there. I mm -hmm. can see her every night. Um, you know, s speak sweet nothings to the moon. I can't see Mars. She's really far away, but. I mean, there's a lot more resources. It seems, the moon's got a ton of resources, and we can always chat about that, and I'll have other guests on the show. But talk to me more about Mars, right? Because that's where we started this. That's where a lot of people want to go and die. Um, so you're sending equipment there to drill down and access that water. Right. Red water? You said Mars. <clears throat> red. Yeah, we call it the red water because red it's water. Mars. And uh Tracks. And color red is come from iron oxide. Um, yeah, so we're gonna drill down to to get to ice, and then um, we'll heat up ice and we'll melt it. Okay. So we're gonna essentially form a, a bubble, a molten, you know, liquid uh, water in the in the ice, and we'll pressurize borehole, open a tap, and uh, Water and the pressure is gonna flow to the to the surface, sort of like geysers on uh, in Yellowstone. Same, same idea. And uh, we actually, this is not theoretical analysis. We've done um, these sort of technologies. We've done these sort of tests on the Mars conditions in our big uh, Mars chambers. Hmm. We 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 had a drill like this. Uh, we drilled down into blocks of ice and uh, we melted um, melted ice we actually put a dye uh, to make it red <laughs> we pressurized the borehole and uh, open a tap and then water would flow into a into a cylinder uh, inside the vacuum chamber as well gotcha. and uh, yeah 
so it's it's actually possible it's not um it's it's not a uh, sci-fi it's it's you know engineering and fundamentally uh physics physics works are there mass constraints for the martian one to to drill that far down and get that and get the water no um you know tens of meters is not uh that deep um things like this would you know weigh hundreds of kilograms um okay so it's it's not you know tens of tons um and we've already yeah hundreds of kilograms and we've already put ton one ton equipment on the mars okay and with you know with a starship uh we should be able to put you know tens of tons on the surface of mars so yeah. i don't think uh, mass is gonna be a driver here um driver is gonna be you know things will be breaking okay okay and um the water that uh we we will mine and extract it's not uh you know it's not a spring water hmm. okay it's it's not uh you know you go to a mountain and and it's fresh delicious and you can drink it yeah. um is it dirty it's dirty and uh it's actually uh it's gonna have some salts um like the chlorates um oh. perchlorate salts and so it's you will have to clean it yeah those perchlorate salts those aren't good for your skin no we're not very good <laughs> in fact you know everywhere you look uh the only water that's nice and delicious is the water that comes from a you know, from clouds and uh, mm. gets down into into the ground and uh, gets cleaned by by soil, fil filtered out. And uh, but it's just like uh, ocean, you know. Uh, in in fact, all the all the water in the solar system is salty water, like our oceans. Really, mm -hmm. out in like Uranus and Neptune that have tons and tons of water, that's all salty stuff. Uh, well, like Europa and Enceladus. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They, you would, you, yeah, it's gonna have salty water. In fact, uh, Mars has a, apparently has also lakes in the South Pole. Oh. Um, yeah, close to, you know, mile deep. In fact, we have, we just recently found um, lakes on Devon Island up in the high Arctic, um, Canadian Arctic. Um, half a kilometer down, these, these lakes are hypersaline. So they uh, liquid at minus 10 degrees centigrade. No way. And uh, the reason why I'm mentioning it, because our crew just came back from there. They deployed a melt probe as a very first test to get down to, to these lakes 500 meters below the, below the surface. So we went down a couple of meters. It was successful. And um, we had to leave because the weather was, uh, we flew with a helicopter had a couple of hours on a, on the surface of ice and eventually had to had to head out so okay. um, we didn't have the time to, to go deeper okay you see you got plans on going back in the next, future next year every year uh we're going back okay every year we're going back just because there's really short cycles where humans can even operate up there yeah it takes it takes some time to develop technology it takes some time to put the expedition expedition together this this time around it was kind of a more of a scouting expedition so we had a helicopter gotcha. that would come and and uh, uh drop us off and then bring us back but uh, next year what's probably going to happen is uh we'll go there with uh entire camp and mm -hmm. uh, stay there for a week or two weeks and uh yeah and then 
do do more of a melting okay gotcha. so if there's already lakes up on over on mars that are just hypersalinated um i guess what's an easier if you if you flash forward to humans trying to live there what's an easier problem to solve with with current tech is it let's melt the ice with some chlorates up at the top or desalinate crazy ice well get to the liquid ice the liquid water (laughs) lakes and then desalinate that these lakes are very deep okay um they uh, it's it's much easier to drill shallow hole and melt uh, ice than it is to drill deep hole to get down to the some kind of a lakes. Okay. Okay. Are there are there regions on Mars that are, you know, <laughs> that we've seen from craters that are more heavily pocketed with these ice uh, sheets closer to the top? Yeah, we found them in couple of a uh, couple of areas there is actually a paper uh, that was published a few years ago okay. which essentially delineates where those uh, features have been located uh, mind you you know um, we've been taking a lot of pictures on Mars yeah. a lot of pictures there is so much data it takes time to process all this data that's why you know we NASA is developing AI so up to you know recently you had graduate students looking for the pictures and mm-hmm. looking at data looking at features and huh. trying to make sense of this comparing and so on and the, the amount of data we generate each day is crazy i mean think about how much how much how many pictures you have on your phone right and Quite imagine that is each of those pictures have to be analyzed right hmm. um just like on mars so it's a ton and ton of of pictures so we have to develop AI to look for, you know, for certain features instead of relying on, on uh, you know, grad students to do it. Anal- analyze as in like, hey, this rock means this that you see, or analyze as in like, back to the old classic of we have to let the film develop, but for a, a digital version. Oh, I- I- more in a, you already have a photo and uh, you're trying to, see what uh, let's say you see one f- rock formation on the in certain location of, of Mars and you're wondering whether the, these same formations can be found somewhere else on Mars right uh, there are some features that uh, for example have been um, you know created by probably flowing water right Sure. And then you're trying to find similar features. So, so we've been looking with our own eyes, and then we go, "Oh, here you go. It's a you know river delta right there." Hmm. So it's much easier along the same lines. If if the AI, uh, you 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 know, load all the photographs, and the AI tries to look at patterns and uh, gotcha. and um, uh, certain features and uh, you know lava you know lava tubes and things mm-hmm. like that okay all right so we've covered m- the moon we've covered mars <sighs> what about all those other cool rocks out there you know i tell you that one thing that is going to be really cool is um, is europa yeah so europa and where is europa uh so it's a moon of uh, of jupiter okay. and uh, it's one of the uh, four 
Galilean satellites, right? Uh, Which are the, like the bigger ones, right? Yeah, four biggest moons like Ganymede, Io, Callisto, and Europa. Gotcha. And um, Europa is pretty fascinating. It's size of our moon, Ooh. okay? But it has more water than we do here on Earth. Which is kind of crazy to think about it, that um, we are not special. When it comes to like how much water we have, in fact, we don't really have a lot of water on Earth. Uh, wow. Yeah, the moons out there, they're not even planets, they're moons. Wow. And they have more water than, than we do. So this, this you know, moon, Europa, um, has uh, uh, around 10, 10, 15 uh, you know, kilometers or 10 miles thick ice, followed by ocean. Wow. And this liquid ocean uh, may may have some uh, some life, some traces mm. of life. Uh, you know, it's not gonna be you know fish. It's gonna be you know simple cell uh, life. Sure. But uh, a mission uh, that would penetrate through ten miles of ice and get down to the ocean would be really really cool. Yeah. We are developing, so the reason why we're going to Devon Island is to learn how to do this kind of missions. And uh, these, these missions would have nuclear reactors, so yeah. you need a lot of heat. Mm -hmm. These missions would be, um, the, you know, the probe that we're actually developing right now for NASA is called SLASH. Uh, it's called uh, Search for Life Using Submersible Heated Drill or SLASH. Okay. Uh, okay. Slash D. Um, submersible. Yeah. So like a little, so it, it, it drills and then it descends into it like a submarine? It's sort of like this, yeah. So imagine imagine you have a torpedo, okay? okay. Uh, a torpedo that's, say, a foot plus in a diameter and maybe 15, 20 feet long, okay. right? Okay, gotcha. And uh, this torpedo has nuclear reactor uh, at the bottom. And then above nuclear reactor, it has a generator system that converts uh, heat from nuclear reactor to electricity. Mm -hmm. It has batteries, it has um, computers, it has communication systems, um, it has uh, some motors and drill bits and this kind of stuff, right? Gotcha. And as it penetrates down in ice, uh, it breaks up the ice and turns it into a slush. Okay. And as the probe penetrates down, the slush above the probe will slowly refreeze. Uh. So your probe essentially penetrates by making like a you know a bubble around it, yeah. right? So this bubble with the probe inside it kind of goes down, 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 and just what sinks. you yeah just slowly sinks. And what you have, uh, what you leave behind, is a uh, you know a foot diameter re-frozen ice, okay, above yeah. you. So uh, one of the ideas we have is essentially to leave like fiber optic okay. uh, for communication. I was going to ask, like, how do you get data through that? Yeah, you can do it with fiber optic, or you could also do uh, RF communication if you have. It's more complex, uh, it's fun stuff. Uh, you <laughs> have like a repeaters that you leave in ice behind you. Oh. But this this journey is gonna take, uh, you know, 
two two years at least to get down to the ocean. From from landed from landed to ten miles down to ten kilometers. Ten miles. We don't even know actually whether it's ten miles or ten kilometers. We'll find out. <laughs> okay. But uh, it's 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 a it's a long trip. It's a long trip, and uh, and eventually eventually you get down to the ocean, and that's when uh, fun is gonna start because you're gonna be tasting this water and, and looking for microbes. We've done similar thing here on Earth. Oh. Believe it or not, there are actually lakes. Uh, at the bottom of Antarctica, really? the, the most famous lake is called the Lake Vostok, uh, which was uh, it's a couple of kilometers down, and uh, Russians uh, managed to drill down to uh, to Lake Vostok, and water was under pressure. So uh, the moment they broke into the lake, there was an inflow of of water uh, uh-huh. into the into the borehole. So that's how we managed to capture some of this, some of this water and analyze it. Nice. So um, and that so was salty, very very salty. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was a fresh water. I don't okay. think it was a it was a salty water. But uh, um, yeah, so we w- there are these analog locations here here on Earth where you we would have to go and test it out before we go to Europa, right? If we can't go to Devon Island and uh, go half a kilometer down and get down to the ocean on the first trial, um, there's no way we're gonna make it on Europa, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, this is uh, what we're doing right now is a very first step in uh, developing these these sort of technologies and uh, it's, it's gonna take decades. It's yeah. gonna take decades because the the mass of this thing, couple oh. couple tons, c- tens of tons. Oh my God! The amount of uh, technological breakthroughs you have to do <laughs> to pull it off is just unbelievable. We don't even know how much it's gonna weigh yet. We don't know how much it's gonna weigh. We don't even, you know, we cannot comprehend the complexities. Um, yeah. But I can tell you that uh, technology is. We don't necessarily need to solve all the problems because a lot of problems are being solved for us by adjacent markets okay so let's say you have oil and gas okay uh, in oil and gas uh, every day uh, they go down to areas that you know require electronics to work under immense pressures and temperatures you have electronics that works at 200, c- 200 degrees centigrade mm-hmm. every single day. Not a problem, okay? A few decades ago, it would be unheard of, but we figure it out. And this technology can be used for uh, these probes that will go to Europa. So you don't necessarily need to solve all the, all the problems. You just have to keep a tap on, a, on what's going on around you and use this technology. Okay. Um, Look at the very fascinating mission to Titan, uh, the drone that yeah. will explore the Titan. Uh, we're actually building a mining system for this, for this mi- mission called Dragonfly. Okay, a mining system attached to, to a little pe- propeller drone. Except it's not little; it's size of a car. <laughs> it's size of a car. Imagine, imagine Perseverance rover flying on Titan. So okay. you're saying flying cars do exist? 
flying cars will exist the yes. moment we land on the surface of Titan. Almost there. And uh, almost there. So uh, this mission is only possible by all the technological breakthroughs that created drone market here on Earth. Yeah, right? sure. And uh, all the IMUs and electronics and motors and uh, stabilization and, and uh, making sure that uh, you can actually fly uh, level, right, and the straight and level. Mm-hmm. All this, all this stuff was done by uh, drone industry, and we we essentially borrowed it, and and we're gonna be using it on um, on Titan. Um, so super fascinating. Again, we didn't have to develop this, right? Gotcha. So it's really important to uh, you know to keep a pulse, to keep a thing on a pulse, and look around and see what other industries are doing, where electronics is going. Uh, you know, computational power, actuators, new materials like bulk metallic glasses uh, that are coming up. So all of this stuff is gonna is gonna make it possible. You said black metallic bulk 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 metallic, bulk metallic glass. glasses. So it's a it's a metal that doesn't have a crystal structure. So all metals they they have Whoa. a crystal structure, and. Uh, the uh, bulk metallic glass does not. It's uh, it's glass, and the glass is amorphous, okay? No crystal structure. And what this means is that uh, its properties are, are m- different, mm-hmm. and in many cases are much better. So uh, it's m- significantly harder than uh, wear-resistant than uh, traditional metals. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So these are the things. Um, so ancillary, ancillary technology, pretty much. Yeah. That's helping all this develop. <sighs> okay. So w- with with all that we've covered so far, like there's there's a lot of examples of you know cutting edge research that you guys are doing, and getting contracted by NASA and other agencies like that. Say, hey, we really want to be able to have this experiment. Can you build us the technology? The future of Honeybee, is it more research-based? Or is there ever a point where it's like, hey, we want to take this and now use it for mass commercial activity? Like, what's what's that future look like? It's uh, it's both. Um, there's no commercial without a lot of this R&D. Sure. In fact, if you, if you think about maybe 1% of the technologies that we develop uh, – can be commercialized. Mm-hmm. The ratio is actually pretty pretty low, um, so it's it's much cheaper to steal ideas from somebody else, right? And uh, yep. but uh, uh, through by developing technologies, we we learn about what works, what doesn't, and um, and so far, I think we've been pretty successful, uh, you know, commercializing technologies. And uh, by commercializing, we mean uh, sending to space or or you even using here on the earth. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of kind of uh, spin-offs from, um, uh, from technologies that, that we develop for other planetary bodies, whether it's software, whether it's electronics, whether it's different type of sampling. Um, okay. You know, uh, the all the instruments, right, that we develop for space exploration has to be really, really small. Right, yeah, and you need really tiny amount of sample. 
here on earth you can use these instruments right if uh, if you can get the same data from uh, something that size of a microwave you can take it with you where you wherever you go right uh, so we you know we're scaling down instruments the size of the room and turning them into instruments the size of a microwave or even smaller mm-hmm. right and that's where the major breakthrough comes comes okay. from all right tracking there um, you know one of the one of the phrases that gets tossed around in the industry especially by nasa folks is this moon to mars moon is a gateway to mars um and i've heard from very passionate people on both sides that that is either the absolute correct way to describe the future or that's complete hogwash and bonkers and it limits the development mentally of the moon where do you fall on that sort of aisle uh, division um i would say that there are benefits uh to go to the moon and before you go to mars but um you have to go to the moon and i think we have to go to mars so it's not like moon is a stepping stone to mars no you not go to the moon and and uh, and when you leave moon to go to mars you go to the moon uh you you settle the moon uh the um economics that will help to sustain uh this human presence on the surface of the moon yeah um and then some of the folks will go to um you know to mars it's like you know first folks coming to to america some of them Hmm. stayed along the coast uh and some of them you know ventured west yeah. Right. And uh, moon is, you know, some people will stop uh, at the moon and uh, some people will continue to go to Mars. Okay. So, um, yeah, I uh, I don't think it's it's, uh, you know, that simple, like, you know, white or black here. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's actually gray area. OK, that's fair enough. Um, yeah. And there's I feel like there's a Venn diagram of technologies and research developed for the moon and technology that are developed and applied to the moon and technologies that are developed and applied to Mars. And there's a decent amount of overlap. It's not complete by any chance, by any stretch of the imagination, but there's quite a bit of overlap between those. Have you found that in just your own drilling equipment in that development? Like the R and D dollars we put into preparing for Viper is really going to help us on red water? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there are some subsystems which we, we're pretty much taking built to print um, from uh, between, you know, red water and, and Viper. Um, and some of, uh, some of the things we, we obviously making changes to. Also, uh, developing uh, any technologies, um, there's one thing that we shouldn't forget. And that's uh, that human beings develop technologies, and um, hmm. these human beings they have to be trained, uh, educated, develop technologies. That's why we go to school, yeah. you know, in the first place, learn math and and sciences. The it, it takes a long time uh, to develop it, and you know, people come in and people retire. We need uh, opportunities for folks coming out of school to uh to get educated in building stuff 
mm. all right so we can continue this journey and uh, that's why i think uh you know this this you know going to the moon is not gonna be uh, oh we're gonna go there in the next 10 years and uh, everything is gonna be done no mm. we're gonna go there and then we have to keep on improving so it's gonna be continuous yeah. uh influx of, of people and and uh, new blood to develop new technologies better technologies uh, life support systems mining systems um and um, to to you know sit bases on the moon and then mars gotcha yeah i mean i've noticed on the the education side there's you know from not being an employer of a ton of different people right now but there's there's quite the influx it seems of yeah, 27 to 21 year old engineers and space people entering into the marketplace mm-hmm. um, and yet at the same time I hear all about all the time about a labor shortage within the aerospace industry excuse me within the space industry um, is that just because we need to move faster we're trying to catch up with China are there other industries that are kind of cannibalizing that where where do you think that fits into the piece of the puzzle yeah, well, it's a it's a good question. The, um, I, I think that space in in general, space industry is driven by um, the fact that space is slowly becoming a next frontier. Hmm. And what we're seeing is that the you know the big market is a um, communication market. Okay. So you have satellites. <coughs> satellites. Yeah. You have satellites, you have communication satellites. Um, the right now Amazon. Sorry, let me just drink some water. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> water break. You too. Listening in. <coughs> so um what what you see now is uh, uh you know space as a next frontier and Companies like Amazon, for example, developing Kuiper um, satellite network, communication satellite, uh, SpaceX developing a, um, you know, Starlink and uh, OneWeb, which started all of this. Uh, eventually, there's going to be, you know, 50, 100,000 uh, satellites hmm. in our orbit, providing uh, high band communication. So you can fly an aeroplane and do a video um, webex with uh, with folks on another aeroplane hmm. all right that's totally feasible mm. so it's a, it's a commercial market it's going to be it's going to be a huge market but it's this market that right now is pulling a lot of young engineers all right so the competition um, so, so some of those folks essentially go to build these satellites there is uh, you know other folks they go to uh, the sort of exploration business like like us here at Honeybee. Okay. And obviously you have a bunch of other folks that go into rocket companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, believe it or not, there is over 100 rocket companies in the US. There's so many. Yeah, it's plenty. So imagine, you know, 100 companies. Stop, and stop uh, making <laughs> rocket companies. Just please, just, just don't make another. <sighs> and let's say e- each company is at least 100 people, right? Yeah. So do the math. You have you know tens of thousands of people, right, in uh, uh, building rockets. Uh, some of these companies will never make it, but some of them they will, and uh, they just some some great companies out there. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of this is driven um, 
you know, by his, uh, uh, you know, by his economics and uh, mm -hmm. and the future payoff. I want to finish, you know, uh, with uh, just want to emphasize the importance of training people. We yeah. we have a very strong internship uh, program. But uh, when I was a student, uh, my my I was sponsored by a mining company in South Africa called Anglo American and De Beers. It was this big gold sure. diamond company and. Uh, so every summer I would spend, uh, you know, two months working, uh, you know, twelve thousand below the twelve thousand feet below the ground, or a few thousand feet below the ground, and uh, would go back to school, and would approach all the subjects and engineering subjects from a slightly different angle, more practical angle. Yeah. And eventually, after after school, I ended up working in those mines for a couple of years. It was just unbelievable experience uh, learning true engineering, uh, you know, seeing things breaking. Hmm. And um, this really set me up for, for developing these things for, for space. And um, we trying to do open the same opportunities for, uh, you know, students uh, to come here, uh, you know, 10, 15 of them at a time. Mm. Spend a couple of months in learning what engineering is like, uh, what things work, what what things do not work, and um, yeah. our future essentially is in the hands of folks that are going to school right now and uh, will be graduating soon. We really need to uh, keep going. Yeah. And, uh, people is is essentially our future, so it's important to invest in our future. Absolutely. I mean, I think. That's one of the main reasons reasons I'm doing this, is because China produces more engineers every year, yep, than we have in our entire workforce. Yep. I don't have the brain to be an engineer. Uh, I did finance somehow, and now I just talk to people, uh, and numbers are involved in sales. But we need those engineers. So keep it up, guys and gals, please. Uh, finance. One thing, other thing that people don't learn in school is that f money is critical. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, I usually say that the uh, difference good between a good engineer and a brilliant engineer hmm. is nothing less than a brilliant engineer can do it for less. There it is. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's Everyone can build stuff, but if you can build it at half a price, yeah, brilliant engineer. Hmm. So as, as you're going through your your capstone project, try to finish it early. Take a step back, come back and go, how could I reduce complexity? How could I make this cheaper, et cetera? That's right. And that's the only way we can we can actually explore space. If we can build stuff at half a price, yeah. we can launch twice as many things. Simple, simple math. Hmm. I like it. I like it. Well, we'll we'll pause here, and then we're going to bring Hunter on awesome. um, as well. But for engineers and stuff out there, best way to to get in touch with you guys for that internship program or what is just the Reach website. Reach out to us. Go on the website. Send us email. We are on Twitter. We in Instagram, social media. Um, yeah, you'll find us. Do you have a TikTok? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> next, next is gonna be TikTok. All right, yeah, little little video of the drill going down, the drill going up, things of that nature. On Devon Island. <laughs> there it is. That'll do the for trick. Sure. Awesome, Chris. Well, hey, right. really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. 
Thank you so much for tuning into the show. We greatly appreciate it. If you got some value out of this video podcast, drop us a like, comment, review, anywhere it is that you are listening or watching the show. That's right. If you did not know, this is a video podcast. So if you want the whole experience, including the funny faces that I just made into the video, check it out on Spotify or YouTube for that full experience there. I am at Vincent Maroli on YouTube and on all social media platforms. Vincent Maroli, M-I-R-O-L-L-I. Check out the description. Kind of sounds like cannoli, but that's outside my control. So at Vincent Maroli on everything but the TikToks. Not jumping on that train. Don't want to give China any more of my information. They got a lot. Next time, we are going to have Daniel Faber on the show. He's an incredible CEO in the space industry and his company, Orbit Fab. They're making gas stations in space. Yeah. Yeah. Chew on that. You got two weeks until that next show. So get your pencils ready for your notes. It's going to be a good one. Until next time, may the God of hope fill you with all peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's some encouragement from Romans. It certainly encourages me. I hope it does for you as well. Till then, ad astra. <laughs>